Today is um, September 6, 2020. We are reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 22, the paragraph, Why Does He Behave Like This? through page 24, the last paragraph, when this sort of thinking is fully established. Today's reader is Jeff H. from Iowa, and our speaker for 20 minutes will be, and I'm going to say your name wrong, Rhea, Rhea, um, from New Jersey. So if Jeff, if you could um, please do the reading for us. Sure, thank you. Thank you, Claire. My name is Jeff Harpin. I'm a overeater. It's uh, a picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering. What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there never will be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently. For why, we cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol whatever into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mentally sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend ever took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that last drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. But in their hearts, they has a real hold. Some, uh, excuse me, once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is, an, uh, there is an obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. But they often suspect that they are down for the count. How true this is, few real, hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. The tragic truth is that if a man be a real alcoholic,
happy day may not arrive. He has of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. Just the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. Almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazily, they are hazy and readily with the old threadbare idea that this time it keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Uh, the alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way, and after the third or fourth, pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sakes, how did I ever get started again? only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink, or what's the use anyway? When this sort of thinking is at least in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he is probably liable permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, for those listening on the podcast, uh, Jeff, you were freezing up a little bit. So we kind of, there were certain parts you kind of went out on and we turned off your video. If you want to turn it back on just because it helped improve your sound. Um, but okay. So now we're going to have... Um, I'm going to butcher your name again, Rhea. Rhea, Rhea, right? Rhea. Rhea, damn it. <laughs> You're going to get it. You're going to get it. One of these days. Um, I'm going to have you speak. To, uh, what I'm going to do, it's 20 minutes. Do you want me to give you like a 15-minute warning? Yeah. Yeah, that okay. would be good. All right. So thank you so much and take it away. Okay. Good morning. My name is Rhea. I'm a compulsive overeater and a bulimic. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak today. Kim asked me, last night. I was supposed to speak next week, but I'm speaking today. And so forgive me if I don't know what I'm saying, because I'm going to figure it out as I go. Um, this is a really rich section of the book that we're reading. And, you know, there is a solution. We're still in the section where the first bill and the first 100 are explaining the mind of an alcoholic. And the reason for that is because in order to work the steps, we have to really understand that we're in a hopeless condition of the mind and the body. Um, because I don't know about you, but I will stick with destructive behavior as long as I can get away with it. Um, so until I'm told like, this is a life or death thing and you're not gonna be able to weasel your way out of this one, am I willing to do something different? And so they spend a good chunk of the book, let's see here. So they don't even get to 
the actual steps until a good third of the way into the book. You know, we're looking at chapter five before we talk about even one of the steps. So this is a good chunk of the big book here where they're saying they have to really sell us on this. And Bill was the salesman. They have to sell us on this story of alcoholism. You know, you have a problem. Well, we diagnose ourselves, but if this is you, if your brain works like this, you're not going to get better. And if you want to get better, if you don't want to die, because they make that pretty clear also, they use the word die a lot. If you don't want to die, you can do this instead. And unfortunately, there are lots of people who, and I was one of them for a long time, where I believed that I could figure this thing out myself. You know, I was, I started eating compulsively from the time I was a baby. Um, we have videos of me sharing Dairy Queen with my parents and I was maybe six months old and I ate them under the table. Um, you know, I, it's just how I operated. I remember being five years old in kindergarten and taking other kids' pizza crusts out of the garbage can. You know, I never ate normally. And I don't, I don't, I can sort of think of a time where I, I crossed that line they talk about where once you cross it, um, you really are, there's no pow power beyond human aid, anything before human, um, excuse me, anything, any human aid cannot stop you at that point. And I get a vague sense of when it happened, but either way it happens early for me. Um, so on the one hand, it was both, uh, miserable because I was a teenager and wrestling with a horrendous eating disorder. Um, and you know, I was obese from the time I was young. So there's all the fun that comes with that. Um, but at the same time, because I went down young, I got to program young. I went to my first meeting when I was 19 years old. I've been in program for, let me see, 18 years. Um, I'm 38 now. And I was abstinent for 15 years. I had a re short relapse last year and I've been abstinent again for nine months. So um, I say I'm, you know, with a, a small commercial interruption, I've been abstinent for the majority of those 18 years. So I'm, I'm lucky in that regard that I've been able to, to have that kind of time. However, I, I used to use my first experience um, in this disease as my framing point, but I found that after 16, 15, 16 years, um, somehow I convinced myself that I was able to, you know, eat like a normal person um, because this disease is insidious. And, you know, they talk about that. They talk about that here, how, well, first of all, they ask, you know, after we have these damaging episodes where we wake up and we say, how in the heck did I do this? And it, they ask, you know, on page 22, why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that that one drink means another debacle, why does he take that one drink? And the truth is, the answer is because he's an addict. That's the only answer. Nobody knows how he became an addict. Nobody knows why he's an addict. You could point to a fact. There are a million reasons I could say I'm an addict. It's genetics, you know, from the, from my great grandfather, who was an alcoholic, to my grandmother, who was a compulsive eater, my mother was a compulsive eater, my grandfather, who was a gambler and womanizer, you know, like, okay, fine. So genetics come into play. Or the fact that my parents had three kids within four years after me, you know, and I didn't get enough of their attention. Although, you know, I had an idyllic childhood in every possible opportunity. You know, you can point to all the whys, but in the end, the why really doesn't matter. It's the what. Are you an addict or not? Only I can decide that. And I decided that I am. And if I'm an addict, I'm going to keep repeating this behavior. And that's the end of it. If I sit there 
you know, there's this, um, if I sit there obsessing about the why, I'm going to get nowhere. I have to think about the what, and am I an addict? Yes, I am. Okay, so let's move on. Um, so they talk about, you know, this idea of if they take any of, even if he stays away from it for months or years, if he takes any of it into his system, something happens in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible to stop. And my recent experience has really proven that, you know, I was very clean abstinent for 15 years. And then I had something not so great happen to me. And I eased off of meetings. And somehow I got it into my head that like, I was okay now. And it wasn't even it wasn't even this idea that I was going to go completely out of OA. It was more insidious than that. It was, I think I'm doing God's will. You know, I think God wants me to, to let go of these rigid um, restrictions that I put on myself. And maybe it's time for me to outgrow, you know, this, this lifestyle that I've held myself in for so long. It's time to, you know, have more faith and live more in intuition. And my intuition will get me right into a pint of haagen Like, you know, that's, that's pretty much how it goes. But that's really the problem. And they talk about that on page 23. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, right? So we know you have an allergy in the body. No problem. My aunt has an allergy to strawberries. She knows if she eats them, she'll go into anaphylactic shock. So she doesn't eat them. The end. That should be the entire book, right? You have an allergy to alcohol. Don't drink anymore. The end. But if we're all doing the same thing over and over, then it's not the allergy that's the problem. It's my brain that's the problem. It's my mind telling me, you don't have a problem, even though I clearly do. So it says, therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. That's addiction. The addiction is not the reaction to the food. That's the physical part. But the fact that I have a brain that not only tells me that I don't have a problem, it manufactures problems that I can use as a reason to eat and then tells me that that's going to make it better. So I'm basically like a hamster in a wheel creating my own disease over and over again. Um, so as it, it talks later in the paragraph about the philosophy of a man who's having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer, right? So I beat myself on the head with a hammer, but I had a headache already. It wasn't the food that was my problem. I had the headache going on already, which means that really the problem is me, that I've been creating a situation that I've had to medicate with food. I didn't understand that. For many, many, many years, and even into abstinence, I thought, well, if I don't eat compulsively anymore and I'm thin, then everything will be fine. The problem was I got abstinent and I got thin and I had all of these feelings and shitty things still happened which was surprising to me. That wasn't how it was supposed to go. You know, like I live, if I live in a God-centered life and I do what I'm supposed to do, like I'm supposed to be protected from all these bad things happening. But nowhere in this book does it say shitty things aren't going to happen to you. Like it, it, there was, you know, in the, in the nine step promises, that's not what it says. Um, you know, I've lost in, in my, in my time in program, I've lost my mother to cancer. Um, I've lost jobs. I've, you know, had like huge transitions, financial insecurity, all different, you know, I've lost friends, all different kinds of things. Um, so I, I, that wasn't part of the deal I made with God. You know, it was, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and you're going to do what you're supposed to do, which means do what I want. Um, and so when that didn't happen over time, I, you know, it wore down for me. Um, 
So we go down and it says, once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Um, in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There's the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. But they often suspect they are down for the count. And that was true for me. Um, from the time I was young, I knew, I, I was never in denial about the fact that I had a, a problem with food, ever. I knew something was up with me. I knew that people didn't eat the amounts I did. I knew they didn't sneak food. I knew they didn't hide the wrappers behind their beds. And I knew when I was 16, um, you know, there was a, a woman who came to my school. Um, I went to like a fancy um, private school and they had a woman come and speak about her, her history of bulimia. She was there to, you know, tell people not to be bulimic, <laughs> but I took her idea and ran with it. I thought it was genius. You know, I get to eat what I want and not gain weight. Um, and for me, that, that was, I knew that wasn't healthy on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was desperate to do whatever I could to keep myself under control. Um, so that wasn't my problem. It wasn't the fact that I didn't know. It was the fact that I thought I was the one who was supposed to handle it. Um, I didn't have a program. I didn't have a higher power. It was, I grew up in a diet culture, which was if you just exercise enough willpower, then you'll be okay. And when I continuously failed at that, I felt like, you know, I was defective somehow. You know, there were people who were accomplishing huge things, people who lost huge amounts of weight. And I could never lose more than maybe 30 pounds ever. And I, you know, I weighed, my top weight was around 250. So that's not to say that 30 pounds is nothing, but that I could never do more than that. And by the end, I could barely do anything. Um, so that was my conundrum. My conundrum was, I know I have a problem, but I have, I'm the one who's supposed to fix it, which think, looking back now doesn't actually make any sense, but I had no other way to think about it. Um, also, you know, I live in America, which is, which is like, give it the old college try. You can have it if you work hard enough. Um, and I'm sold this idea of like, there's only one way to live or to be that's acceptable. And one way to look that's acceptable, especially if you're a woman. And if you're not that you need to make it happen and you need to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And so there was something really painful about the fact that I really couldn't make it happen, um, over and over and over and over again. Um, so it says down, you know, on page 23, again, how true this is, you realize in a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal and everybody awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. And honestly, I waited for that day more than anybody else. I was like, you know, how many Monday mornings did I have where I was like, today's the day, you know, how many January 1st, this is the year I'm going to do it. And it was really, God, it was like really painful. Um, because I wanted it, you know, and they say like, if you want it bad enough, you'll have it. You know that, what was that thing they used to say in like exercise classes? Like nothing tastes as good as thin feels. Um, I disagree. <laughs> Number one, I disagree with that. There are certain foods that are better than sex. And I'm going to say that out loud. Um, however, I have been thin and I will tell you that on the other side of that, being thin without a program is more painful than being fat without a program because for two reasons. Number one, because I had no coping skills, which meant, and I had no buffer. I had no medication anymore. So if I'm an unmedicated sociopath in the thin body that's passing for a normal person, that's really dangerous. 
um, people will treat me like I'm normal. And then I basically burn through them like cigarettes. So it's, it was really, really painful. And number two, this story that I told myself about like the credits in my romantic comedy rolling as soon as I got thin, not happening and life getting a lot harder and shittier afterward. It was like, you know, I was completely disillusioned by that. Um, you know, the tragic truth of that is that the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. Um, and that's really how it was for me. You know, I can't, I couldn't live without the food. And then when I learned to get abstinent, I didn't know how to live, excuse me, I couldn't live with the food when I was eating. But then when I got thin and I had been abstinent for a long time, I didn't know how to live without it. And I had this holy grail of like a thin body that I thought was going to be the, you know, the fix to my problems. But really, I just, I still had no way to live. Um, so let's move on, shall we? Um, the fact is most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. And I will say from my experience, that first drink, you know, I went 15 years between my last binge and well, almost 16 years, last binge and the binge that I had last time on New Year's Eve, um, 2019. And it really, it just doesn't change. Like the story doesn't change. It really doesn't. This is, it goes the same way. Even if you've waited a long time, you know, it doesn't, even if, you know, I started eating again in September of last year. And for, you know, a month or two, I didn't binge. Thank you. I didn't binge. Um, I didn't, you know, go crazy. I wasn't eating things in my car. I wasn't stopping at all the convenience stores. You know, I was okay. The difference this time was that even if I wasn't in the food to the depths that I was last time, it was the, the obsession was still there. The the obsession with what I was going to eat, what I could have, what I was eating, when I could have it all, you know, that part was even more difficult than the food or not having the food. Um, which for me is, is even having, having had that spiritual peace after working the steps, having had that spiritual connection, that place of obsession is, is so painful and so distracting. And I was basically back at square one in terms of my thinking. Um, and not just about the food, about the body image stuff. Um, I'm sorry, hold on a minute. Yes, sir. Yes. Can you ask your father? Because I'm talking on a meeting right now. Thank you. That was my seven-year-old. <laughs> Close the door, please. Um, so it's, it's really hard to describe that experience to someone who doesn't understand what we're going through, um, who doesn't understand that like the entire dynasty rests on the fact that I'm wearing a size 14 pants instead of a size 10 or eight or whatever I was, you know, or that like the whole world should stop 
if I ate a piece of whatever or stop because I didn't eat a piece of whatever. The truth of the matter is, and I was on the phone with my sponsor this morning, my addiction doesn't go away. It never goes away. Whether I'm obsessed with food, which I was for years and years and years, and now thank God I've been relieved of that obsession for a long time. But that doesn't mean the obsession with how I look has gone away. You know, I was just on the phone with my sponsor this morning. During my relapse, I put on about 30 pounds. And I, you know, have been abstinent for a long time and I'm exercising. And life is very different than it was when I got abstinent at 22 and I sneezed and lost 100 pounds. You know, I'm 38 and I had three children. And it's not, you know, I'm, <laughs> how do I explain it? It's sort of like, um, like trying to, peel shellac off of a rooftop while the other hand is rubbing new shellac on. <laughs> That's, you know, it's, it's hard work and it's slow going and it's really forcing me to confront my old ideas about what, how I'm acceptable. You know, for me before it was, you're only acceptable, thank you, if you look a certain way. And guess what? That's part of my disease too. And that obsession is just as insidious because I could just easily say, well, if I'm going to look like this, I can eat whatever I want to. But the truth is, and my sponsor said this to me this morning, if you're doing everything you can, then all you need to do is focus on God. And I'll tell you, I had a very lovely experience this morning that I think kind of sums this up in a nutshell. The last time I was at this week, I was, pr I don't know, it was probably 20 years ago and I was probably suicidal because, you know. That's how I rolled back then. Um, also, to be in a size 14 was, you know, to me was, was unthinkable. I was supposed to be small. I was supposed to, I was supposed to be a certain way. And so I was so wrapped up in myself and so constantly thinking about how I looked and what people thought of me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to function in the world. I didn't notice that other people existed. This morning, I went on a walk with my dog, and I'm walking around the neighborhood, and I noticed in one of the yards across the street, there were three deer, and it was cool. They were, like, right there, and um, so as I'm walking, I notice this woman coming around the corner, and I said, good morning, which I never would have done 20 years ago. I would have been like, is she looking at me? Is she looking at my pants? Is she looking at how I look? And instead, I said, look, look across the street. You see the deer? And she looked and she smiled. And then I walked a little bit more and I saw someone else. I said, hi, look, do you see the deer? And like those moments of connection with other human beings are what this thing is all about. In order for me to be living in God's will, that requires nothing except abstinence. It does not require a, an awareness, excuse me. It does not require me to be wearing a certain size. It does not require me to be at a certain weight. It does not require me to be anything but present. And the way that I'm present is by being abstinent, praying every day, looking at my life and checking in and saying, what do I need to be today? God, show me what I need to do. And then I can just show up because that's what this thing is about. This is not a weight loss program. This is not a diet program. This is a life program and a spiritual program. And that's the difference today. You know, I can, my, my disease 
just takes on different forms. It's like whack-a-mole. And these days, it's not about food. It's just about whatever ideas my brain can come up with. But just like a child who's decided that there's a monster under the bed, even though we all know there isn't, I can talk to my disease and talk to myself in the same loving way of, you know, it's okay that you believe that there's a monster under your bed, but I promise you there isn't. Come take my hand and let's go together and you'll be safe and okay. And that's what this thing's about. And in order for me to get there, I have to acknowledge that, yes, all these lies, all these stories, all these things I'm telling myself are not true. And I need to be willing to let them go in order to live in a new reality. So um, I think I'm done. Kim, are we done? Are we time? Yeah? Okay, cool. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Rhea. Claire, if you can stop the recording.